This is ASHA Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. When clinicians and families aren't speaking the same language when treating pediatric swallowing disorders, our guest today says things can get confusing and dangerous. In anticipation of ASHA's upcoming online conference, Rethinking Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing, we're republishing a conversation with SLP Laura Brooks. We discuss the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, or ITSI. Laura is a clinical specialist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and is also a leader both in the U.S. and internationally as a part of ITSI. For 10 years, ITSI, an interprofessional and international collaboration, has been developing standardized measurements for thickened liquids and modified foods. It has also developed resources explaining the standards and how to implement them. ASHA has continuously supported the initiative since its 2013 inception. When we spoke in January, I began the conversation by asking Laura what the goal of ITSI was back then and what ITSI is doing now. So the goal of the group back then was to standardize the terminology for modified diets for individuals with dysphagia. Different countries use different language, and sometimes that can be confusing for the people that are taking care of our patients and then also for our patients and families. So, and sometimes terminology can also vary within a country, depending on the facility. So this was a mission collaborative from individuals from a variety of different countries to come together and standardize terminology for the safety and consistency of working with individuals with dysphagia. Without ITSI and without this framework, how were and how are still, you know, some people measuring things like thickened liquids or modified foods? Do they do this with comparison to other foods or other liquids? How would it work without that framework? Prior to ITSI in the U.S., we were using different terminology, nectar thick, honey thick. Those were the terms for thickened liquids. And then for food, there were a variety of different words that were used, mechanical soft, solid, soft. You have your toddler diet and a lot of different names for different diets that can just get confusing and can lead to some safety hazards. This was a way to kind of bring about new terminology that is understood. It means the same thing no matter what facility you're in, no matter what age you're working with, and no matter what country you're you're working in. That makes sense to me. You, you, you talk about something like honey, and I've seen honey in a bottle, but I've also seen honey in a jar that's much thicker. There's a subjectivity to it whenever it's in reference to just other food items, or maybe it's a language that, you know, colleagues would understand from experience, but when working with other people, I could imagine that could become confusing. Yes, it definitely um, can get confusing and a little dangerous and scary using the word honey in pediatrics because for infants under the age of 12 months, they're not supposed to have honey in their diet. It's very dangerous for an infant to consume honey. And so when we use these terms and we know how stressful it is when a parent is coming to a swallow study and has to modify their child's diet because they may be aspirating thin liquids and we tell them thick into nectar thick into honey, and then they're thinking in their heads, okay, I have to give my infant honey. Or even there's certain um, drinks that are on the market that are marketed nectar, you know, with the word nectar, but that doesn't mean that they're as thick as nectar thick or the thickness that 
we're hoping that it should be for our patients um, with dysphagia. Those old terms from the National Dysphagia Diet can be very confusing for families. I want to ask you a little bit about implementation. When you're speaking with folks internationally or in the U.S., what does it mean for a facility or a private practice to adopt this ITSI framework? What does it take to accomplish that and how would they go about it? Well, that's a really good question. That's a big question um, because it takes a lot to implement ITSI. What we've learned with speaking with people who have implemented and have been successful in implementing and people who have not implemented is that it really takes leadership, ownership to get behind it and to believe in it and say, this is what we want to do. This is what we need to do. This is the right thing to do. And so if the leadership can get behind it and provide the support to train, you know, it's a lot involved in the facility. I work in a hospital and our kitchen needs to be trained. They need to be cooking things differently, preparing things differently. Our medical record system needs to be labeling these things differently. So a lot of things need to take place in order to get it off the ground. And it can take some time. It can take some money. It can take some creativity. But that's something that I think the common denominator is having leadership believe in this and get it off the ground. Laura just mentioned the need for kitchen staff to be trained when implementing the ITSI framework. The training can come from food service companies and contractors. In other cases, Laura says SLPs and dietitians help the food service teams understand testing methods, understand the reasons for the levels and the safety, and she says they can potentially weigh in on certain recipes. We'll hear more about interprofessional aspects of the ITSI framework in the second half of this episode, including information on collaboration and training. Where we're rejoining the conversation now, I asked Laura if they're using the ITSI framework at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. We are we are implementing. So everyone is kind of in a not implemented phase, implementing phase, or an implemented phase. And so we are in the implementing phase and the almost implemented phase. We try to counsel facilities that it's kind of easy to implement the lower levels, the thick and liquid levels, and because you just need syringes and they have certain syringes are ITSI approved. And those are syringes that we have all over our hospital to do our, to do like the ITSI flow test. You use a certain size syringe to see how fast liquid travels through it to determine how thick the liquid is, correct? Yep. So it's it's a flow test and you use a 10 ml syringe but because barrel length and diameter and everything can be a little bit different between syringes, itsy.org will let you know which syringes are itsy approved. And then itsy is coming out or has come out with a funnel that can purchase through Simply Thick. And then also soon to come, you can purchase it through the itsy store. And that makes it a little easier and a little more clear. And you don't have to use two syringes when you use the itsy funnel. But if you work in a hospital setting that has the certain syringes like we do, it's very easy access and very easy to test the thickness level of liquids. And it's been really exciting to just be able to use it. You mix formula with cereal for a baby or gel mix you add to breast milk or a commercial thickener to apple juice for a kiddo. And then you can just shake it, test it, takes a couple minutes, you make sure it's the right consistency, 
and then you feel you feel good about what you're giving the child. So it's easy, it's handy, and that's the point is that it can be tested by anybody. It can be tested by the speech therapist, by the nurse, by the parents. We want everyone who's involved in our patient's care, you know, I work in pediatrics, but if you work in adults, obviously, teach the patient, teach the patient's family to test it because base liquids and thickeners can react differently. Like different base liquids are, they can still be a thin, but there's kind of a range of thins. It just allows for you to make sure that you have the most accurate level and that is the safest for the patient. The liquids are kind of easy to implement because like I said, you just need a stopwatch or a timer and syringes. But the food, if you're in a facility that prepares food for your patients, then there's a lot of changes that need to be made with the kitchen staff. If you are working in a facility or in a you know private practice or whatever, and the patient, the adult or the child brings in their own food, then that's just a matter of training the family for how to prepare the foods at home. And there are some really great tip sheets on itcd.org, both for adults and for pediatric patients, different levels and different tip sheets for foods that are prepared a certain level and you don't have to change it. Or if you're preparing the food in the kitchen or at your facility or at your kitchen in your home, how you can test that food. It's not about recipes. This is one of the biggest things that ITZY tries to explain is that we're not about recipes. Even though everybody always asks us for recipes, we say the point of it is not to have a recipe. It's not to tell you this is how you have to prepare your food to eat it. The point is you prepare the food and we will tell you with our testing methods if it meets the criteria. And what we want is for the testing methods to be culturally sensitive. So we have certain testing methods that you can use to test foods with chopsticks or using your fingers or certain techniques like that. A lot of the ones in the U.S. are measured with the space between the tines of a fork. And there are certain considerations between like a size of a bolus that you would want to give a pediatric patient due to their smaller trachea. So But the point of it is to have everyday tools, forks, spoons to test these foods and to make it as as easy as possible and as accessible as possible. I'm happy you mentioned the cultural considerations as well. Food is often closely associated with culture. And so both inside and outside of the U.S., I'm sure that there are many considerations that you have to make when you're thinking about what people are going to be eating given different diets. And with pediatric dysphagia, maybe even there's more to consider because you're working with families as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's the, the whole point is to make it accessible to anyone. Last year on the podcast, we had SLP Cheryl Hirsch on the show, and she discussed social determinants of health as a part of working with pediatric dysphagia. She began screening patients with a questionnaire to look for social determinants of health. And these are sometimes unseen environmental and social factors, such as access to food or housing that can hinder healthcare outcomes. And in that interview, she said, quote, it's my responsibility as the provider to take a few moments, pause, and ask one of these really difficult questions, end quote. One example from that episode is that, you know, Hirsch says she discovered that the food item she often recommended to families was not covered by the Massachusetts Food Assistance Program. And this made it more difficult for some families to obtain that specific food. 
So she's met with other SLPs to come up with a new list of foods that might work as a suitable replacement. But could you just talk a little bit about this? How can SLPs take into consideration complex social as well as cultural needs of the people, families, and caretakers with whom they're working? Yes, that is such a good point. And it is definitely at the core of what we need to do as providers when we're working with a patient and family, just put ourselves in their shoes and get a sense of what their challenges are, what their barriers are, what's their day like, how feasible is it to prepare a thickened liquid and send the child to daycare? Will the daycare thicken a liquid for this patient? And, you know, we have families that their daycare won't thicken a liquid or won't provide food through a nasogastric tube and the parent is relying on their income, you know, for the family and then they can't work because they can't send their kid to daycare. So that is a really important point in all of healthcare, but especially in pediatric feeding and swallowing. With the food part of ITSE, it's pretty nice because you can prepare everyday foods and any anything, any cost and make it ITSE approved if you prepare it in a certain way. The food part is not as challenging for patients who have socioeconomic barriers, but commercial thickeners can be for sure. They're expensive and they some, some of them are hard to get. Sometimes you can only get it on online. You can't just run up to CVS and pick up the exact brand that you want. You don't know if it's going to be there. And then, then again, it's also, like I said, it's super expensive or can be expensive. And so that's why we try to take into account what the family can do. We give them options. And then as much as we can try to see what we can do with using low cost thickeners like cereals, if we can, that exact issue actually motivated me to do a study on using purees as a thickener. And so that was a study that I partnered with a rheologist at Georgia Tech recently. And we published a paper about a year ago for that exact same reason, because parents either didn't have access to thickeners or were unsure of the safety of thickeners and how it impacted the child's or infant's immature digestive system. You know, what is this gum? What is this cornstarch? I can't imagine that that can be good for my eight-month-old child and their digestive tract. So that project was inspired by that exact topic of trying to make things accessible and make parents feel good about what's going into their baby's bodies. And we kind of tested different purees and like yogurt added to milk and really smooth purees added to water so that if that was a route you wanted to go, you could do that. These are the ones that work. These are the ones that don't. They will stay the same thickness, refrigerated or frozen to thawed. You can send it into daycare. They don't have to mix anything. They just shake it up and give it to the patient. And so that was a really nice addition, I think, to the literature where we say, hey, you have options. So whatever works for the family. A lot of what we're talking about is translating this information, whether it's interprofessional, internationally, or between providers and care partners or family members. And I can understand for dietitians, SLPs, other medical professionals who are around people who are using modified foods or thickened liquids, speaking the same language would have many benefits. I can also imagine that for some care partners or family members, that these diets might be new and that too much technical information could be difficult to remember. Do you ever find that family members are 
more interested in something that says, oh, can they have something as thick as applesauce? Do, do they need the comparisons or do they prefer using a more technical framework? That's a good question. And it is very challenging because we take for granted some of the language that we use and the jargon that we use that we think makes sense to families. And it doesn't a lot of times. We ask them as part of our assessment, you know, how do you like to learn? Do you have any learning challenges? So we know what barriers might be in place to learning. And then we always try to have the parent leave the session or leave the hospital or leave the assessment with information that's been provided auditorily and then also written form. And I'm always giving out, here's my name, here's my number, here's my email, contact me if you have any questions. And with commercial thickeners, it's a little more straightforward because there's kind of a general recipe, I guess. And then and then ITSI has a way to print out testing methods. But again, does everybody have a Luralock syringe in their house? It's like with everything we do, we just want to put ourselves in their shoes and imagine what is a day in the life of them having to implement all of these recommendations that we're giving them and what makes the most sense and how can we make this easiest for these families? You know, we're talking about translating this information for families and care partners. And I'm thinking about what you said earlier about at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. It wasn't just the syringes. It was also working with the kitchen. Can you talk a little bit about the interprofessional aspect of implementing a new framework, whether it's dietitians or the kitchen or other healthcare professionals? Have there been barriers to everyone getting on the same page there? Yes. So I think, you know, I've gotten some feedback from different facilities that have implemented that it is hard sometimes to get the two main disciplines involved in NC, which are the, well, I guess there's three, like you said, you know, you have the culinary aspect, which is one, and then you have the dietitians, and then you have the feeders. In our case, it's the speech language pathologist, but in some facilities, it can be the occupational therapist. Everyone's coming to the table with their own kind of expectations and their own parameters of what makes sense for their department in terms of time, in terms of finances and everything and and what they can contribute. And like everything in healthcare, it's all about setting the goal and then how do you come together for that goal? So if everybody is on the same page, then what can we do? What can the speech therapist do to, to support the dietitians to help get them on board, help them understand the importance, and then help us understand what some of their challenges are too. And then really importantly, connecting with our colleagues in the kitchen to help them understand how important this is and how to implement what they need to make sure that they're preparing the foods well and labeling them well and serving them well. And there are some agencies who are providing like a consultative service, which is nice. They have people that come in and can actually train the kitchen staff on Etsy. But yes, all coming to the table and getting on the same page, like any group, just depends on the group and each facility does it a little bit differently. But like I said earlier, just having the leadership from all of those groups at the table and then filtering down that information to people like me who are in the front line, the ones in front of the patients and families working with them and making sure everyone's educated, everyone's equipped, everyone feels comfortable, confident, and supportive of the mission. 
I'm going to ask you about your presentations in just a second, but I wanted to ask you before we moved on about other uh, I word, not interprofessional, but international, which is a big part of ITSE as well. What are you learning from other countries that you're working with? What surprised you when you speak with folks implementing ITSE internationally? So there's, you know, ITSE, like I said, has each country's individual reference groups. And then Peter Lamb, who's the founder of ITSE, had this genius idea because he realized once he was collaborating with all, he's not a pediatric dietitian, but when he realized when he's collaborating with all these pediatric clinicians, how different pediatrics is from adults and how our challenges in the pediatric setting are quite unique. And he had the genius idea to set up a pediatric international ITSE reference group. I'm co-lead of that with Jan Dubestein, who is one of the founding board members of ITSE. So she and I are co-leading this international reference group, which has been so exciting. Our goal is to have representation from all 50 of the international ITSE reference groups. And so far, we probably have about 15 countries represented. It's funny, the committees that we ended up establishing based on feedback from people in Spain, from Italy, from Canada, from New Zealand, are very similar to the committees that we have in the U.S. You know, we want an education, we want a research committee, we want an advocacy committee, we want communication. That's been kind of eye-opening, how similar-minded our missions are. And then something really exciting, think about pediatric feeding and swallowing internationally, it seems like you would come to the table with just different ideas based on your culture and your your country. But it's funny, everyone kind of, when we asked everybody, why are you here? What made you want to be a part of this group? Everyone had very similar reasons for being there. The best way that I can put it is they asked the same questions And then the answers are different based on where they're coming from, what facility they're coming from, their culture, their resources. That's been really eye-opening. And that's the fun part is that we're, we're all coming to the table with the same questions, but we're all learning so much from each other. So the point of ISSI reference groups, international and U.S., is just to kind of have a network system where we can just help people understand and learn from each other. And if you have questions, come to us. If you want to share something neat, then come to us and we can help disperse the information. That's been exciting nationally, but also internationally. I want to ask you about your presentation. So I mentioned that you'd be presenting as part of the upcoming ASHA conference, Rethinking Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing. Now your presentations are going to focus on, one's going to focus on the esophagus and one's going to focus on pediatric airway disorders. What led you to these subjects in your career? I'm really excited about both of those topics because it's something that I do all day, every day at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And these patients who have feeding and swallowing disorders oftentimes have issues involving the digestive tract or they may have reflux, they may have... um, some kind of issue with the esophagus might have difficulty breathing. Their swallowing disorder either can cause difficulty breathing or difficulty breathing can make swallowing much more challenging. How fine-tuned and coordinated the breathing swallowing system is, you can think about the pharynx being one space that is shared 
with breathing and swallowing, and then it kind of divides trachea into the esophagus. It is a very well-oiled machine when it comes to adult swallowing. And then you think about an infant who has to swallow once every second and coordinate suck, swallow, breathe, suck, swallow, breathe, suck, swallow, breathe. And you can imagine in an infant feeding how any kind of airway disorder or increase in respiratory rate or difficulty breathing, airway anomaly, narrow, narrowed airways, anything like that can really compromise feeding and swallowing. My favorite thing to do is collaborate with other SLPs. You know, hey, I just did a swallow study. Come, we do this all the time. You know, come, we take a look. I, I want to pick your brain. Or having the radiologist come back and take a look and say, hey, I was, you know, so focused on whether or not the patient had any aspiration or penetration or whatever. And I just now, when I reviewed it, I just noticed this in the esophagus. What do you think about this? What could this be? And then after that, sending a message to the referring physician that might be a GI doctor and then including the ENT who's involved in the case or the pulmonologist and say, hey, I just did this swallow study and this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm recommending. They may or may not have followed up with GI in a while, but they have XYZ issues. Do you think we should get an appointment? Just kind of collaborating, staying in your speech language pathology lane, but also just kind of working together as a team because you all have the same goal for the health of the baby and for normalizing as much as you can eating and swallowing for your baby. And they, we all you know, come to it with a different perspective. And I just learned so much every day. I've been a speech pathologist since 1999. And I learn a hundred new things every day, just asking questions. Tell me more about this, asking respiratory therapists when I'm doing Pasimirabov stuff. That doesn't make sense to me that, um, to explain gas exchange to me. You know, it's it's not a something that a speech language pathologist does, talks about gas exchange, but it's important for me when I'm working with a patient to understand when when they say that this patient is having difficulty breathing and needs more respiratory support because of X, Y, and Z, then you can just kind of wrap your head around it and just have a good understanding of what's going on with the baby. The topics that I'm presenting on, they're challenging because it's a lot of information that we're not exposed to in graduate school. A lot of the learning comes on the job and comes with just asking questions and sitting down and picking someone's brain and just saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. And can you explain it to me? Or learning on the side, doing more reading, watching a YouTube video of professor in pulmonology, talking to his med students on respiration and ventilation, you know, things like that, and doing more CEUs, ASHA CEUs, and getting your continuing education, all those ways that you can kind of expand your knowledge of all the systems that connect with feeding and swallowing that just help you understand your patient so much better. Mm -hmm. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Laura Brooks is co-lead on multiple teams at ITSE, including those for communication and advocacy for the U.S. Reference Group. That group shares tips on social media and at itsy.org and fields questions on the ITSE framework, the biggest questions being about implementation. You can see Laura present at the upcoming ASHA conference, Rethinking Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing. The online conference begins November 29th, you can register today at on.ash.org slash pedfeeding23.
Laura will also present on thickened liquids at the upcoming ASHA convention in Boston. Find a link with more information on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. While you're there, you'll find more information and links to ASHA resources. That's at on.asha.org podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.